This is They Create Worlds, episode 187, Atari's Sinking Ship. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by he who talks about it way too much, Atari, Alex. Hello? That's right. We're going to talk about Atari again. Yeah. I know. We talked about it before. Like, one, two, three, five, fifteen. We talked about it last episode, even. Oh, God. (laughs) So, yes, we get to talk about Atari again. You know, because Atari. That's right. As those of you know who listened to our previous episode, we are taking another slightly different in-depth look at Atari and the Crash, something that combines new information that I've gotten since we first discussed these issues at this point years and years ago, and takes a slightly different kind of minute-by-minute look at the car crash that was the Atari mess. In our last episode, We covered 1982 and all of the problems that were going on there as inventory kept backing up and backing up. Warner record executives were getting more and more nervous, and the Atari people were like, yeah, don't worry about it. But yes, they should have worried about it. We ended, of course, with E.T. and the uh, December 8th announcement of the lower earnings and all of that stuff that really started the crash in motion. It's kind of the ceremonial, if you will, beginning of the crash. It's, it's not really the moment it began. There are no beginnings or endings in this crash, but it was certainly a beginning. Now we're ready to look at the fallout, because the thing that people don't always think about or don't realize when looking back at all of these events 40 years later is that just because Atari had the restatement, just because the stock hit the toilet afterwards, just because the entire industry was backing up and games were starting to be discounted and a crisis was beginning to form, did not mean inevitably that Atari was going to collapse and take most of the rest of the video game industry down with it. So what we really need to do now is turn our attention to 1983, perhaps a little bit of 1984 at the end, and examine how Atari approached this crisis that they found themselves in and how it was absolutely, completely, and utterly the wrong way to do it, which led to the not inevitable but certainly dramatic result that was the breakup of the company, and the near total collapse of the home video game industry. Is this one of those cases where it's almost like a cartoon where the ship's taking on water, and in order to get the water out of the ship, instead of using a bucket and bailing out the water, they drill another hole to let the water out? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. That's the analogy here. Here's the thing. So December 8th, Atari makes their big announcement. We talked about it last episode and in many, many episodes before that. Earnings are down. Profits are down. The company is going to grow. The company, in this case, being Warner Communications, not Atari. The parent company is going to grow, but it isn't going to grow at the explosive rate that the company has always managed to grow for the past 30 quarters or so. There's clearly an inventory glut in the market. This inventory glut is clearly causing a problem. There is some level of discounting 
beginning at retail, though at this point, mostly fairly moderate. Couple examples. I'm looking at you, Space Jockey, which was already down below $5 after rebate, but most of the industry was still not in complete collapse at this point. All people knew is that there was an inventory glut and that a course correction was going to be needed. But here's the thing at the time, I think it's pretty clear just by looking at the response, just looking at what people were saying in the trades, what people around the industry were saying at the time, I don't think anyone actually expected at this point that Atari would fail, that Activision would take crushing losses, that a magic would take crushing losses. Everyone knew there was a glut, but the logical outcome of this was that it would be the smaller, weaker companies the companies that just came into the market, the U.S. games of the world, the 20th Century Fox games of the world, these Johnny-come-latelys that came in with often subpar product, very poor marketing reach, very poor sales and distribution reach, and didn't have a compelling product in the market to sell. These are the companies that I think everyone expected to fail. There was going to be a shakeout, but surely it was going to be these unworthy companies with these unworthy games that ended up falling away. And sure, Atari's probably going to take a hit. We know they've already taken a hit because their growth has slowed to almost nothing. And yeah, Activision may take a hit, but, you know, these guys can keep going. They're going to release new games and they'll be fine. The shakeout's going to be with the little guys. So at CES in January 1983, everyone is very bullish on the market. People still made money in 1982. Even Atari made money in 1982. Video games are still, in theory, popular. Roughly 90% of the market is controlled by the big boys. Atari, Mattel, Activision, Parker Brothers, the companies that were actually having success. Atari had success with E.T. in 1982. They moved 2.6 million units of the thing at the end of 1982. Now, we're going to come back to E.T., but at this moment, January 1983, they moved 2.9 million copies in 1982. Parker Brothers moved 3 million copies of its two hit games, Frogger and Empire Strikes Back. Activision had a great Christmas with Pitfall. I don't know how many it sold in 82 versus 83, but over the life of the game, Pitfall sold somewhere between 3.5 and and 4 million units. Probably only sold, you know, 2 or 2.5 million of those in 82, because we're talking lifetime sales here. Or maybe it sold 3, I don't know. I mean, I don't have exact figures. But I mean, there were hit games during Christmas 1982. There was no reason for analysts to believe that the whole thing was about to go kaput. And so at CES, people were like, yeah, there'll be a shakeout. Yeah, the weaker companies are going to fall away. But it's going to be fine. Really, we promise. Pay no attention to the giant pile of video games behind the curtain. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I'm, I'm not sure people realized quite how much stock there was behind the curtain. You know... Prices were mostly stable in 1982 of games. Prices dipped a little bit at the end of the year. But, you know, this isn't the time of the $5 discount bins. 
people kind of blur all this crash stuff together. But at the very beginning here, this was not the time of the $5 discount bins. Prices were down a little bit. But most cartridges were still selling above $20, above $25. Many cartridges were still selling for $30. So at first, this just looked like a shakeout. But there were incredible warning signs if people were paying attention. For instance, Activision had a profitable fiscal 1983. They had record sales and profits in fiscal 1983. But their fiscal year ran from April to March. They had a big hit with Pitfall. Even though they were profitable in fiscal 1983, their final quarter of 1983, which was January to March of 1983, was significantly less robust than the rest of the year. Now, those results didn't come out until May. People didn't know that in January. But internally in January, Activision knew that they had had a great Christmas. But pretty soon, they were starting to hurt. Atari finally announces their—or Warner, rather, the parent— finally announces their fiscal year results in February. Because remember, and this is uh, something I harped on in the last episode as well, that December 8th announcement was not their earnings report because their fiscal year ran January to December. It was updated guidance. So finally in February, they released the actual numbers for fiscal 1982 for both the fourth quarter— October to December 82, and the full fiscal year, January to December 82. That's where things really get interesting, because even though Atari showed a 12.8% gain in full year income over 1981 to $323.3 million, that's income, that's their profit, even though they saw a whopping 63.6% sales increase to just over $2 billion for the whole year. Massive. Almost unbelievable. It's funny money. Fourth quarter earnings fell year over year 99.1%. So to put it in another word, they had this massive growth, sky-high things, and apparently the cartridge glut artillery fire just started throwing a whole bunch of cartridges at them and hit the fuel tank, and this thing's crashing hard. Right. Their sales went up 16.8% to $598.1 million in the fourth quarter. But their earnings fell 99.1% to $1.25 million. So for the full year, they made $323 million and change. They only made $1.25 million of that in the fourth quarter. So where did all the money go, obviously? Did that because it was lost to production and we're just writing off the stock or writing off the cartridges? Right. Or is this the giant check that they have to give to Steven Spielberg for the rights to E.T.? Ha <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that $20 million certainly didn't help, though that wasn't fourth quarter. There's a couple of things going on here. Because first of all, remember that this is Atari's sales. It doesn't reflect what people were actually buying at Christmas. It reflects what retailers bought to sell at Christmas, right? Because they're not getting their money from the people who are going into Kmart and Toys R Us and Sears and plunking down money on a brand new Atari video game. 
they're getting money for the stock that they sold to the retailers in anticipation. You may recall from last episode that because of the glut of product, retailers ordered product to get them through kind of the Thanksgiving weekend to get them through the first part of the fourth quarter. And then at that point, Atari was expecting massive reorders because they figured that the general public went out shopping Black Friday, Thanksgiving weekend, et cetera, et cetera, and that all the stores in the country would need more inventory to restock for the final big Christmas push at the end of the year. And that didn't happen because there was such an inventory glut that the retailers had all that they needed already and they didn't need to place reorders with Atari. Part of it is because there was such a retail backup that they just weren't selling much product in the fourth quarter because companies were still moving through the inventory they had bought in the third quarter, moving through the inventory that they had bought in the early fourth quarter and didn't need to restock. Remember, for instance, we talked about this last episode, they had forced Kmart to take their entire holiday order in the third quarter because they needed the boost in the third quarter. So that meant Kmart, which was one of their big customers, didn't contribute any profits to the fourth quarter because they took everything early. So that's part of the problem. And then the other problem is, yes, we're talking about profits, not just sales, because sales did increase 16.8%. It's not like they sold nothing in the fourth quarter. But in terms of revenue, that was offset by all the extra product that they had created that they were unable to sell to distributors and to retail in that quarter. So even though sales were up, they had to offset what they made by what some of the stuff that they produced but weren't able to do anything with. Unit sales were up for both game systems and cartridges, but profits were way, way down. And it was because of all of these supply chain and distribution issues that we spent all last episode talking about. So we don't need to talk about it again. Even though in January there was still a lot of optimism amongst the big companies, there was clearly something very wrong. It was really going to be the Atari response to this situation that dictated how the whole market would go. And the Atari response was quite simply atrocious. Some of this was bad luck and bad timing. Some of it was hubris. Some of it was plain old mismanagement. You put all three together and you have a company going kablooey. Now we get to talk about this. And, you know, I've got a lot of sources on this. There's Connie Brooks, Master of the Game, the biography of Steve Ross, which has a great section on Atari. We referenced it a lot in the last episode. Connie actually had access to some court documents and testimony because, of course, whenever a public company suffers a sudden reversal, there's always shareholder lawsuits. There may be an SEC investigation, Securities and Exchange Commission. And in this case, there was both an SEC investigation and shareholder lawsuits. And Connie Bruck actually consulted some of the testimony from these suits and investigations when writing that book. So there's some great firsthand information pulling from there. I've also talked to some degree or another to just about every one of the major players from this period I've interviewed. Ray Kassar, CEO, talk to him. James Morgan, replacement of CEO, talk to him. Manny Girard, Office of the President, overseeing Atari at Warner, talk to him. Mike Moon, President of Consumer, you bet. Dennis Groth, the CFO, absolutely. It goes on and on. So I have a lot of picture here. And Some of it is very new since the last time we covered these topics, which is why we wanted to do this again, because I don't think it's an overstatement to say that at this point, I'm not saying I have it right, because as we like to talk about on this podcast, 
As I like to say all the time, for something that's already happened, history sure does change a lot. I'm not saying we have it right, but what I am saying is I think I can confidently say that I have more in-depth, high-quality information on what the heck happened here than anyone else who has ever looked into this. We can really provide a more nuanced look at the 1983 disaster than most other sources can. It really comes down to distribution again. It comes down to sales and distribution. I mean, it's sexier to talk about E.T. being awful, which it was. It's sexier to talk about how many poor quality games were flooding the marketplace and eroding consumer confidence and all of that, which was certainly happening. It's sexier to talk about home computers coming in, the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, providing a great deal of competition and steering consumers away from video games. That happened too. These things happened. These things were factors. But if you want to get to the heart of what really killed Atari, it really comes down to this sales and distribution mess. Even though those other topics play a role, and these are topics we certainly talk about in our other Crash episodes, We don't want to focus on them today. We really want to make this about sales and distribution. Just think, logistics is such an important thing. Mm -hmm. Logistics is how you get food that goes onto your table. Yeah, you're at the end of that logistics chain when you go to the grocery store and buy that food to put on your table. But who hasn't in the last year or two seen the supply chain disruptions that we've had with just getting food on the table or anything you want? Toilet paper in your bathroom. (laughs) Toilet paper in your bathroom. We laugh about it now and we've lived through it, but that's just an idea of how important logistics are and how fragile our distribution system is to any kind of supply chain issue, be it You have too much supply piling up in one place and it's not flowing through. Or there's a shortage because, hey, I can't get my hands on this thing and it's all stuck in crates over there on the loading dock. Right. It will kill and destroy even the biggest of companies. Absolutely. And of course, in this case, we had the exact opposite situation, which is you could get all the product you wanted. The problem is nobody wanted it. Atari's big problem. I mean, it's all the same problem, too much product, but we need to divide that into kind of the three branches of things. There isn't a strict three-tiered system like in CoinOp with manufacturer, distributor, retailer, because there's a lot more fuzziness in retail, but essentially you have those three parts of the supply chain. You have retailers that have too much product on their shelves that they cannot sell. You have distributors that have ordered from Atari and have products still sitting in their warehouses that they haven't been able to sell on to retailers that have too much product. Then you have Atari, which can't turn on a dime. It's a big operation that is still manufacturing product that is piling up in the company's own warehouses. So when we're saying this stuff is piling up in warehouses, it's not just one warehouse that's just like (laughs) Atari's big warehouse of cartridges that the retailers come up to you and go, Please, sir, can I have a cup of cartridges? Now, this is a giant thing of production that they have going on with their order from whatever manufacturer they talk to. Those cartridges get shipped to Atari. Atari takes those cartridges and says, okay, distributors, what do you want? Here, 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 here. Distributors take it, and they put it in their warehouses, and then they go, hello, Mr. Retailer. Here is your cartridge, your cartridge. Proceed on, and Mr. Retailer is at this point going, I don't need this cartridge. I have enough sugar. 
I don't need more sugar cartridge. Go away. Exactly. So it's the relationship between these different parts of the ecosystem that's going to determine what happens next. Once Atari sells a product, there is no strict right of return to the company. This isn't like when you and I go to Amazon.com and we buy something and decide two days later we didn't like it, and Amazon just takes it back from us, no questions asked, and gives us our money back. There is no absolute right of return. You know, Atari, the manufacturer, needs to book the revenue of the sales, you know, of the cash they've got, and they can't have that unpredictable volatility. So, you know, all sales are final, in a sense. But, of course, in reality, it doesn't work that way. Distributors and retailers will always be negotiating because, of course, everybody needs each other. It's all fine and good for Atari to say, we don't accept returns of products, but they need the distributors and retailers to buy the next new game. If they still have a game on the shelves that hasn't sold, the retailer is going to say, okay, we'll take your new game, but you have to do something about this inventory that we have right now. If you want us to sell your new game, you're going to have to give us price protection on the old product, which means we're having to heavily discount it and you need to make up the difference in our profits, or you need to take some of this stuff back before we'll take your new stuff. There's always give and take, even though there's no absolute right of return. Now, Atari did have, at the time, a stock rebalancing program. That was the euphemistic way of talking about returns, was stock rebalancing. So Atari did have a program in place at the time where they would exchange one old game for two new games because they want to keep this stuff flowing on the shelves. You could return product, but only if you committed to taking two new games. I don't know exactly how it worked, but I presume you got a discount on the two new games subject to returns. I don't know exactly how the economics worked out, but basically they allowed a limited amount of stock rebalancing, but there was no full-scale return policy in place. So at this point, Ray Kassar has a choice of what he can do. He can bite the bullet and just accept just about everything back, take the hit, and probably lose way too much money. They can kind of try to avoid dealing with the retail situation, but at least destroy the product that they still have possession of, legally dispose of it in a way where they have to eat the loss on the cost of materials, but at least the product is no longer glutting the marketplace. Or they can try to proceed business as usual and trust that the market is going to sort itself out. Jeffrey, you're not an expert on any of this. But are you willing to take a wild stab at the option Ray Kassar chose at this point? Let's see here. My options are, as you put it, I can either A, deal with the retailers and take some stuff back and see if I can try and get things going. I can take all of this stuff on my inventory in my warehouse and have a mysterious fire. Or I can say, everything is fine. There is no problem here. There is no distribution problem. Distribution is not a problem. You're the problem for talking about distribution. Why do you hate distribution, Alex? Distribution is what makes everything better, and it's flowing just fine. So obviously, distribution is fine, and I'm taking C. Final answer. Jeffrey, you have just won the million dollars. <laughs> no. Or... To be more accurate, you've just won a $500 million loss. Wait, what? 
<laughs> That's right. That's what they did. Now, you know, Ray Kassar didn't think it was business as normal, obviously. I mean, everyone knew that there was a problem here, but it was this thought that everyone had that it was going to be the little guys that fell out. And I have this from a couple of different sales and marketing people that were at Atari at the time. Ray Kassar, who was first and foremost a marketer and a very talented, very good marketer, he made his bones as a marketer at Burlington. It was his marketing savvy that helped get the VCS moving in the early days when the VCS was having problems. I mean, he's a great marketing guy, but he sees the market through those eyes. And I've had it from multiple sales and marketing people at the company that he firmly believed Atari was the leader of the industry. Atari was not the company that was going to fail. As long as they kept up savvy marketing, they could push all of their product through the channel. They didn't really cut back and they didn't destroy product. They kept doing everything they could to push products onto distribution and retail, which in hindsight was almost certainly the wrong choice. But, you know, I mean, there was some arrogance there, maybe, but it was also just he was a marketer and he was a marketer at a company that had just recorded $2 billion in sales in the previous fiscal year. So we got the Atari ship here with, let's say, a million cartridges. It's chucking them to distributors with a five-gallon bucket, and they just ordered 10 dump trucks of cartridges. <laughs> yeah, so it was his policy to do business as usual. He figured it was better to keep the stock flowing into the market and get a little something back on it than destroy it all and take the loss on the production of the inventory. Because he figured at the end, in the end, it would all sell because they're Atari and there would be a shakeout. The lesser companies would fall away and eventually Atari would get all of its stuff through the marketplace and it would be fine. But obviously that's not going to be the way it turns out. So that's the first part of the problem is Ray Kassar, who did many great things for Atari in his time as CEO, he gets maligned a lot, sometimes unfairly, because he did do some things for the company. But in this case, he did not make the right choice. He decided that they would keep marketing the product and keep pushing it out because they were Atari and they were too big to fail. The other thing that was going on that was even more destructive than that, though, is the unstable distribution picture. We talked last episode about how Atari had a real distribution problem. They had distributors that were poaching on each other's territory. Their distributors were non-exclusive, which meant that they could sell other video game products besides just Atari product, which helped get competitors into the marketplace and flood the marketplace anymore. They had distributors that were literally stealing each other's stock off the loading docks. They had distributors that had their own special deals to be regional distribution hubs. So you had retailers ordering from distributors and ordering from Atari, double dipping, there was chaos in the distribution, and they decided that something had to be done about this. And they were right that something had to be done about this, but this was kind of absolutely the worst time to do this. So they worked with a Warner executive in late 1982. They put this plan together before everything went to pot. They worked with a Warner executive by the name of Leon Kniza to completely reorganize the Atari distributor force. All of the contracts that Atari currently had with its distributors were running out at the end of 1982. So the distributors were going to have to sign new contracts to keep carrying product. So they decided that this was the perfect time to reinstate order. They decided that they would cut down to one distributor per market, no exceptions, and this distributor would have to be exclusive to Atari when it came to video game products. 
As we talked about before, these kind of sales reps, they're not just in one business. They'll be selling one company's toothpaste, one company's toasters, one company's video games, you know, so they have other business. But in terms of video games, they had to be exclusive to Atari for the term of the contract, which would be three years. They were already planning to do this before everything blew up at the end of 1982. But then when everything blew up, it complicated the situation. Because I think they probably figured there'd be no sweat. Demand was so high for product, they figured that distributors would probably be begging them to become exclusive with them, to take their product. Yes, they'd have to give up sales from other companies, but, you know, we're Atari, we're the big ones. Even with companies like Activision and Parker Brothers having such success, we're still over 50% of the cartridge market. People are going to make a lot of money just going with us, especially since we have all the big hits and, and all of this stuff. They probably figured this would be no problem. But by the time it was time to put this whole scheme into effect in March 1983, the market had completely changed. There was a glut of inventory. Distributors were holding all the cards and had Atari over a barrel because of the way the entire market had ground to a halt. And so they knew they needed to do something in order to entice distributors to stay with them. And so they came up with a plan meant to help clear out the current inventory and give distributors a, an incentive, a carrot, to stay with the company in return for the stick of you have to be exclusive to us now. What they did is they told distributors that if they signed on with Atari, and, and actually I said the contracts were ending in late 1982, but it was actually March 31st is when the contracts ended. So April 1st was going to be when the new contracts went into effect. If you stayed with Atari, you would have to be exclusive to Atari. But what we'll do is we'll give you a 25% write-down on all of your current stock, which means that they'll refund them, essentially, 25% of the purchase price or whatever. And we'll give you a 40% write-down on your E.T. stock. That just shows how much of a disaster E.T. was. So we talked last episode how E.T. didn't really have an effect on 1982. It came out too late in the year to have an effect. It came out like the last week of November. So when Atari's making an announcement on December 8th about how their earnings are going to be lower, there is no E.T. impact yet because it literally came out like a week or two before. Now, by the beginning of 1983, we realize we're in trouble because even though people bought the game at Christmas, basically on the strength of the name, Sight Unseen, because there was no time because it came out so quickly because of the rush schedule, there wasn't time for magazines to review it. Even the commercial for the game that they aired at Christmas, which we showed in our E.T. episode that we did in the show notes, even the commercial they aired didn't feature game footage. Like, nobody really knew what this was. So consumers, grandmas and whatnot, bought this game on the strength of the name, and then everyone realized what a giant turd it was after, you know, a few weeks by the end of the year. There were returns, and they didn't sell through all their stock because reorders weren't needed. So even though it sold 2.6 million copies in 1982, they had way, way more hundreds of thousands, maybe even in the low millions, of additional copies that didn't sell. It's interesting because we have some sales figures from this period, a small number, that are Atari internal documents. So like these aren't sales estimates. These are actual sales figures. And the interesting thing about these sales figures is they are net sales figures. It's not just the total amount they sold. It's the total amount they sold minus inventory that they did not sell. Net figures. Less returns. Sales less returns. 
it's broken down by year. And, and unfortunately, we don't have the complete document. It just shows briefly in the background in the documentary Once Upon Atari. It's very incomplete, but it's yearly breakdown and it's net sales. And we can see the first 15 or 20 entries on the list. And it's 1980 forward. E.T. on this list sold 2.6 million copies, as I said, in 1982. In 1983, it sold negative 600,000 copies net because it's sales minus returns. What this means is they got more returns of E.T. than they sold of E.T. in 1983. That's why it sold negative 600,000 units that year. The ones that did sell originally in 82, people are taking back in 83 and returning them. Mm Mm-hmm. Distributors and retailers, because of this distribution realignment, where distributors that still had the game in their warehouses were returning them to Atari as well. Unit sales that Atari booked in 1982 came back in 1983, and you figure they had to sell, they probably sold at least a couple of ETs in 1983. Somebody somewhere probably bought one. Enough people had to have bought it, otherwise it would be a rare game today and wouldn't cost so little as it does. Right, so they had more than 600,000 in returns in 1983, because that's the net. I don't know what actually sold in 1983, but if they sold 500,000 units in 1983, just for the sake of argument, pull a number out, that means to have net sales of negative 600,000, they actually had to have 1.1 million copies come back. 600,000 plus 500,000, because, you know, they would have had to have 500,000 in returns to get back to net zero, and then another 600,000 in returns to get to negative 600,000. I'm not saying they sold half a million units that year. I don't know how many, if any, they sold in 1983, but I'm just saying the number's even bigger than you think, because if they sold half a million units and had net sales of negative 600,000, that means they had 1.1 million returns. Do we know how many were sold in 82? In 82 was 2.6 million. For sake of argument, they sold none in 83 and 0.6 million came back. Right. At worst, they had 600,000 in returns, but it's, it's liable they had even more come back. You can tell that there's such a glut because in this new distribution deal, it's like, we're going to write down 25% of all of your Atari stock that you have, period. Except for E.T. E.T., we're going to write down 40%. We know we way overproduced that. Exactly. Obviously, that cost them a lot of money, because this is money that they had already taken in. This is inventory that they had already sold to these distributors, that in most cases, they had probably already taken payment for. There might have been some if they had, you know, I don't know if their terms were net 30 or or net 60 or, you know, what they were. So some of the revenue might not have been on the books yet. You know, this is revenue that they had already booked. Now they were having to give money back to their distributors in the form of write-downs. This is not to say that E.T. is solely responsible here. If we look back at our holistic view of E.T., it really is more the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. E.T. isn't as bad a game as everyone makes it out to be. It's more in line with as bad as, say, Indiana Jones was, which had a lot of the same kind of weird quirks and right. why would you even do that kind of thing going on? By the same programmer. And by the same <laughs> programmer. It really stems from the fact that E.T. in general was just not super positive with the public. Mm-hmm. And you can see that with not just E.T. the video game, 
It's with E.T. the toilet paper, <laughs> E.T. the lunchbox, E.T. the backpack. Right. E.T. staring at you lovingly on your bed sheets. Yes, it, it turns out while kids were enamored with E.T. as a movie, they didn't really want E.T. in their house. And, and we did talk about that, how the merchandise in general was suffering by Christmas. So, yeah. Obviously, there are other games that are backing up. It's not just E.T., but it is interesting to see that they gave the special extra write-down on E.T. stock. And it's also interesting to see that their sales of E.T. went net negative in 1983 by a not insignificant amount. It's playing its role, but it's not the only thing. But it gets worse than this because they had to spend a lot of money doing these write-downs for the distributors that they were keeping. But what about the distributors they were not keeping? Because they're going to an exclusive one distributor per market, however they decided to define their markets, which meant that they were also cutting distributors loose. They were not retaining all of their distributors. Well, of course, the distributors that they were cutting loose, they had to take their stock back because they're not allowed to sell it anymore. And it's not the distributor's fault. They have to take the stock back. That's standard. I mean, they knew they were going to have to eat inventory from distributors they were cutting. But here's the thing that they screwed up really badly. Atari had very poor financial controls throughout a lot of this, and this is just another example of this. They didn't audit their distributors before they started accepting returns. So why is that a big deal? Well, let's say as a distributor, we'll keep the numbers small because I don't do math. I bought 10 copies of a game. I was able to sell five copies through to retail and I still had five copies of the game left on my shelves. When Atari comes knocking and says, you're no longer going to be a distributor with us, we'll take back your stock, refund you. They are entitled to return the five copies they still have in their warehouse. The other five copies have already been sold on to retail. They're not the distributors anymore, they're the retailers. What Atari needs to do is say, okay, we're going to take your stock back and we need to inspect your records and see how many copies you have left, how many copies of our game you've sold, so that we know exactly what to expect back from you in returns. That's auditing the distributor, looking at their records to see what they really still have on their shelves and what they've sold onto retail. But remember, nothing is selling at retail. So of those five games they sold to retail, let's say four of them are still on the retailer's shelves. They only sold one of them. Distributor has just been cut loose by Atari. They have no loyalty left to Atari because Atari has said, thank you for your years of service. Goodbye. But they need to stay in this business, so they need to stay on good terms with the retailer. The retailer's not happy because of those five units that they bought from distributor, four of them are still on their shelves and they're not making any money. Since Atari's not auditing the distributor's records, what the distributor goes and says then is, Hey, Mr. Retailer, I noticed that four of those games that I sold you have not sold and are still sitting on your shelves. Well, here at Big Jeffrey's Game Emporium, we require to make the maximum profit we can, and I know that you, as the proper distributor, can provide me with the games that I need. So what can you do for me for these four horrible E.T. cartridges that I just can't sell? I tried giving it to little Jimmy, little Susie, and little Tommy, and they were like, I don't want that horrible monster staring at me from my Atari. 
What can you do to help me there, Mr. Distributor? Normally, my answer to you would be nothing. That would make me sad. But let me tell you what's going on right now. What? Atari has just cut me loose as a distributor. They are going to be taking back all of my unsold inventory, and they are not looking at my records before they do it. So if you just slide that inventory back to me, I'll return it on to Atari, and then we all get our money back. You know, I like how you think. Hey, Susie, go pack up those cartridges for me. Exactly. So Atari was only intending to take back stock that was still in distributor warehouses. But because they made the decision not to audit distributor records, distributors would go to their retailers and say, Atari's taking everything back. They're not checking. They're not looking. Give me your stuff back. We'll get this taken care of. So Atari knew they were going to take a hit when they had to eat stuff that distributors were giving back to them. But it ended up being a much bigger hit because they were getting stuff that actually had already sold to retail. It hadn't sold through to consumers, but it sold to retail. This just created a flood, an absolute flood of returns on hardware and software. Returns and write-downs, because they presumably didn't audit their distributors they were keeping either, and so there may have even been some shenanigans there, I don't know, but the point is, Distributors and retailers were doing everything they could to take advantage of the situation and get out from under this glut of product. You know, here at Big Jeffrey's Video Game Emporium, where we are getting rid of all of this stock, I'm just going to return all of this, and we're no longer going to be Big Jeffrey's Video Game Emporium. We're going to be Big Jeffrey's VCR Funhouse, <laughs> which is going to be a lot more entertaining, and we know that you, the discerning consumer, want some Betamax. So, come on down after I take all this stock back to multiple distributors and not have to deal with video games anymore. Yes. And of course, Ray Kassar wants to keep selling the product. He doesn't want to destroy it. So when they take back stock, they're going to try to find a home for it with their distributors. With their distributors that they're keeping, instead of taking back excess ET stock, they're not going to take back the ETs. They're just going to give them a write-down on it because they still want to sell it and recoup something because Ray Kassar is convinced that Atari can market their way out of the situation. Kind of the standard narrative that people have told, and this is a narrative that wasn't based on much of anything except speculation, I think, was that the reason you saw price erosion in 1983 is because retailers found that they had stock that they couldn't sell. A lot of the smaller publishers went out of business and or couldn't offer them price protection or take stock back. So because they had nothing else that they could do, retailers had no choice but to decide themselves to take it into their own hands to start discounting stock down to $10, $5, $1 in order to clear it out. While I'm sure a little bit of that happened, that's not actually what was happening. What was happening is Atari especially, and I'm sure some of the others too, but Atari especially was forcing the hand of the retailer to mark down product because they were insisting on pushing all of this product through the marketplace. They offered write-downs on the product instead of taking returns of the product. I mean, they took returns from the service they were cutting, but the ones they were keeping, they took write-downs on it instead. Which meant that in order to recoup their costs, these companies were going to have to cut the prices of the product to sell it at retail, which they were able to do and still make some money on because Atari was marking down the product, which meant they could sell it at a lower cost to retail and still make a profit. 
retail could sell it at a lower cost and still make a profit. But this wasn't bottom-up, the retailers forcing the matter by just throwing everything into discount bins. This was top-down imposed by Atari refusing to just eat product. You know, this is in contrast with Parker Brothers. We talked about Parker Brothers. We did an episode on them, and I talked about how Tom Dusenberry put together a plan where they just ate product. They just took product back and paid the price for it, and it was hella expensive, but it saved the company. Even though it cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, it would have been worse if they had just let it all hang out there in the market and watched the market get further and further eroded. You know, that's what Parker Brothers did. They took it back. Atari was just like, eh, just sell it cheaper, essentially. That is what caused a lot of the deep discounting problems, which, of course, sucked the whole industry down with it. And again, Atari is not the only actor in this. You know, everyone is hurting. Everyone is doing what they can to survive. It's not like Atari is single-handedly bringing down the market, but Atari is the market leader. Atari is still trying to push product in a time when the marketplace can't handle it anymore. And it's eroding the price, which was a worse decision because, I mean, yeah, if you take it all back, and I mean, they would have never taken all of it back, but if you took a lot of it back and ate that huge loss, it would be a really bad loss. I mean, really devastating. But you could hope to recoup some of that by bringing out new games, selling those new games at full price, and slowly bringing the market back that way. But instead, they're like, well, we don't want to take as big a hit short term. We don't want to eat the cost. We want to recoup something on everything we've sold. So we're going to keep it in the marketplace. But all of that did was depress prices, which meant that you got very little return on the inventory already had in the marketplace. But it also meant you couldn't sell your new product at a price point where you could recoup. We get into that problem at the end where you have the non-tech savvy consumer. Mm -hmm. Dad comes in and goes, I want to buy a video game for... The kids for their birthday, Christmas, whatever. Oh, look, I can spend $50 on new Atari game A. Or I can take that same $50 and buy five games from the discount bin. Hmm. Which one would you choose as a non-savvy consumer? Well, obviously I buy the five games because, hey, I'm coming home with five games. Woo! And then there's the other problem. Because this isn't just about software costs. This isn't just about going to the store and seeing I can buy five games for the same price as one game. That's happening. That's only half of the equation. Because the other half is hardware prices and how hardware and software prices are connected. By April of 1983, because hardware has had problems moving as well, especially since you have the new systems, especially the ColecoVision, but also the 5200. Even though the 5200 has a lot of issues, it's, it still represents an upgrade in some way, shape, or form to the 2600. So you have the new systems coming in. So hardware is glutted too, and the VCS is down to about $85 to $95 at retail. This is a system with a technical suggested retail price of about 170 or 180 which, in practical terms, was being sold much lower by retailers because Atari kept high margins, which meant that there was wiggle room to cut the price at the retail level. You know, it was, had realistically been selling $120 to $140, is now down to $85 to $95. 
But at this point, it gets caught up in this software disaster as well, because Atari needs to move the software however they can, because Ray Kassar is insisting they move the software. So in April 1983, Atari brings back Don Kingsborough, who we've talked about before. Don Kingsborough is kind of a sales legend. He later goes on to found Worlds of Wonder. He's been associated with Atari for a long time, but mostly as one of their biggest distributors. He was briefly brought in as VP of sales and marketing in the first half of 1979, the last time Atari was having trouble moving systems, and did a good job of getting product moving again. So they brought him back inside from his sales rep company in April 1983 to again try to work his magic to move product because he's proven himself to be an effective sales and marketing person mostly by basically just bending over backwards to give the customer whatever they want. <laughs> he's good at establishing a rapport with customers. He's good at finding out what customers want, and he's good at meeting those needs. Some might argue that sometimes he meets their needs too well, <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of what his shtick is. That's what he does. Don Kingsborough immediately clashes with Ray Kassar. Don wants to destroy product. Ray Kassar will not let him. I've talked to Don Kingsborough, so I mean, I've gotten some of this directly from him. He has to move the product. He's been brought in to move the product. How are we going to move out cartridges? We're going to tie hardware price to cartridge purchases. So in May 1983, after Don takes over, Atari starts a new rebate program where you get a $20 rebate on the VCS. Just every VCS purchased, you can mail in your $20 rebate. But the rebate rises to $30 if you buy two cartridges. Because again, they're trying to get that software out of the marketplace. But I can buy two cartridges for $10. I don't know that you quite can buy two Atari cartridges for $10 at this point, but you can certainly buy two Atari cartridges for probably $30 to 40 bucks. Some of their real bargain basement discount cartridges, yeah, you can get for even less by this point. But here's the thing. If you have a system that's selling for $85, $95, $85 at retail, then you put a $30 rebate on top of that. You now have a piece of hardware that in some places, depending on, because the retail price varied from place to place, you now had a system that in some places was selling for as low as $59. So this really screws up the value proposition. What you're telling me is that a video game system is only worth about two cartridges, assuming that the retail price that you're trying to set for a brand new game is $30. You're telling me that a video game system is worth two cartridges? These numbers, you know, inflation and everything. Think about this in modern terms. A PS5 is $500. That would be like saying, Yes, we have these brand new video game cartridges. You want to play Elden Ring? You want to play Horizon Forbidden West? That will be $250 for this brand new video game, sir. Because that's half of a console's purchase price. Is anyone going to pay $250? I mean, I know collector's editions sell for that much, but just a digital copy of a video game. Are most consumers going to pay $250 today for a PS5 game? No. When you see that a VCS sells for 60 bucks, it no longer looks reasonable to buy a game for 30 bucks. Especially when you see other games that are 15, 10, 5, 1. Right. I mean, we already talked about that part of it, but so it's both together. 
It's both the fact that flooding the market with software is driving down the cost of software, but it's also that driving down the cost of the hardware is completely destroying the value, the perceived value proposition of the software. So these two things are interacting together. But again, a lot of it's connected. I mean, Atari's having trouble moving hardware as well. So yeah, they're doing a rebate even if you don't buy cartridges, but they're making the rebate even bigger if you do buy cartridges. So once again, it's the glut of software is even driving down the price of hardware. Then the price of hardware going down is destroying the value proposition of full-priced software. I can certainly see someone coming back to us and saying, but Alex, a game is 80 bucks right now with that $500 thing. Even at $250 for the PlayStation 5, if that ever happens, whenever that happens. Right. That's still valuable. I mean, like, I'd be like, yay, it's on sale or something. Is that more to speak from the fact that we're more intelligent consumers to how this works versus how things were back in the 70s and 80s where people were like, Anything that actually had value that was an electronic was always a multi-hundred dollar expense. Right. I mean, we have to remember that the video game industry is still very new at this point. There are virtually no parents that were gamers back in their day and now have their own kids. To have a kid old enough to play a video game system, you probably have a kid that's five years old. Again, we're throwing out some round numbers just to get the point across. You probably had a kid that was five years old. So if you have a kid that is five in 1982, if you have a kid that is five years old, they were born in 1977. If you're having a kid in 1977, I know some people have kids a little earlier, but let's say you're 22 when you had that kid in 1977. Video games at this point have only been around since really 1973. In the arcades. I mean, yeah, Computer Space 71, Pong, Tail in 72, but really 1973. So if you're having a kid at 21 in 1977, you were already a teenager when video games first became a thing. You were already practically in college by the time consoles became a thing. It's not like you and myself, Jeffrey. It's not like parents today who could have conceivably grown up with video games. The parents of a child in 1982 did not grow up with video games. At most, they just had them fairly late in their adolescent lives. At most. And certainly not in the home. And certainly not in the home. There really wasn't an understanding of what this was. And and also remember, the games were simpler back then. Yeah, you could argue that the value proposition of an Elden Ring or a Horizon Forbidden West, games that are probably going to provide a couple of hundred of hours of entertainment if you're so inclined to play them for that long, yeah, you can argue that even at $100, $150, $200, you're extracting some kind of value on that in terms of a cost per minute or a cost per hour basis. We're talking about much simpler games. Games that do not have title screens. You're lucky if you have a sentence for an end credit. Really, it just boils down to put the cartridge in, demo mode is playing, hit the reset button, select one of maybe two, three, four game modes, and you have a very simple arcade-ish game that you're playing. Exactly. The value proposition is just being destroyed all around, and this is what's creating the desktop spiral. And, and we talked about this in some of our other Crash episodes. 
But what we didn't talk about in those other episodes, because I didn't have the full picture on this then, this death spiral is in big part, not entirely, but in large part being driven by Atari itself. Atari is creating the death spiral by refusing to just eat the loss and destroy product, by continuing to try to push everything that they have into the marketplace, by reorganizing their distributors and having distributors take advantage of their generous terms during the reorganization. They're creating their own death spiral, and they're in large part creating the industry's death spiral. It's for all of these reasons that Atari has that almost unfathomably bad fiscal 1983, where they lose $536 million. That's Atari's losses. I mean, it's, it's still Warner that does all the reporting out, of course, because they're the subsidiary. But in this case, this is, as far as I know, specifically Atari's losses, not all of Warner's losses. Atari, all by itself, loses $536 million in 1983. The reason for this is all of this inventory markdown and inventory liquidation that they're continuing to do. As a result, by June, they are liquidating inventory at such low prices that games start being offered at retail for $10 by the middle of the year. Atari games. Not every Atari game. There's tiers to this. It's not like every game in existence suddenly went down to $10 games, $5 games. It's just slower-moving titles or titles where there was too much inventory in the marketplace. Atari is liquidating so aggressively at this point that their games are starting to show up at $10 each. Of course, in the midst of all of this, Ray Kassar is fired. I don't think he's entirely just a scapegoat at this point. Obviously, the the company's doing poorly and and heads need to roll, but it seems pretty clear at this point Ray Kassar has been an obstacle to fixing the problem. We don't just want to be Ray Kassar bashers because everybody does that, and it's so easy to do. It's the cheap way out. Atari became what Atari was because of Ray Kassar. Ray Kassar joined a struggling consumer electronics company with non-existent financial controls, non-existent quality control, barely existing marketing, a company that's consumer division was losing money, a company that was having trouble selling its brand new programmable video game system, the Atari VCS. He fixed the quality issues, not personally, obviously, he's not an engineer, but he put the team and the standards in place. He made them marketing savvy. He turned video games into a year-round product where you could sell cartridges year-round to consumers instead of just a holiday product, and transformed Atari into a $2 billion subsidiary that was the tail wagging the dog of its parent company. Ray Kassar did amazing things at Atari. But when things went bad, he made a series of disastrous decisions that turned a major crisis. I mean, let's not downplay it. Regardless of Ray's response, it was a major crisis. But he turned a major crisis into an apocalyptic crisis. So at this point, it feels like he wasn't just being scapegoated by being fired here. It feels like it was time because the situation was made worse by the decisions he made as CEO of the company. Unfortunately, Warner didn't do much better. They didn't have much of a plan. In fact, it's kind of funny. According to Perry Odak, whom I interviewed, When Ray Kassar was fired, they asked him to come back to Atari and take over the company. 
Now, remember, Perry Odak was the person brought in in 1982 to be the new head of the Consumer Products Group. When the restatement was announced on December 8th, he was fired as the scapegoat for the reason everything was going wrong. Now, according to Perry Odak, Steve Ross came to him and asked him if he'd come back and run Atari. And I believe him. He's my source for this, but I believe him because, A, it's a bizarre thing to make up. I mean, I guess you could argue that he's trying to rehabilitate his image after being the guy that was fired. So, I mean, I guess he has some advantage there. But this is the interesting thing, why I think it's true. First, Periodak says he turned them down because he said this is impossible. You can't bring me back because you just fired me to take the blame. The optics don't work. Nobody on Wall Street would have any confidence in him. Wait a minute, guys, you're saying that the guy that was responsible for this whole mess is now the guy you're bringing back to fix it? And of course, Periodak wasn't really responsible for the whole mess. He was too new to the company. He wasn't the one that made the mistakes with sales and distribution and all of that. He was too new. He is the guy that Atari, at least, with Warner's blessing, had already made the sacrificial lamb in 1982. So you can't bring him back six months later. The optics of that are terrible. So Periodak very wisely turned it down. But here's the reason why I believe Periodak is telling the truth about this. Because Ray Kassar always said that after they fired him, he was fired. Obviously, the newspapers at the time say resigned for personal reasons, as they always do. It's one of these situations where it was like, resign or we fire you. It's a firing. After they fired him, they turned back around and asked him to stay on until they could find a replacement. Of course, Ray Kassar said, hell no. You just fired me and now you want me back? What the hell? But you see, it makes sense with the ODAC information. It seems that what happened was they were ready to offer it to ODAC, so it's like, let's fire Ray and bring Perry back. But then Perry turned them down, so then suddenly they didn't have anyone ready to go. So they had to ask Ray to stay on, which he also said no to. He's all no. Yeah, of course he is. (laughs) So let me get this straight. You fired me. You've expressed complete lack of confidence in my leadership ability. You want nothing to do with me at this company, but you want me to keep running it for you until you find my replacement and can officially show me out the door? No. That's why I think Odak is telling the truth about this, because those two facts fit together very well. I mean, they don't have to go together. You can have the one be true without the other being true. But the fact that he says they turned him down, and then the fact that they said they came crawling back to Ray and asked him to stay on for a few months, that lends a lot of credence to Perry's story. Manny Girard directly runs the company for a few months, as they do a search for a permanent CEO. Of course, they then bring in James Morgan from Philip Morris. By this point, things are just really, really in the toilet. The distributor thing is a mess. They've had to stop accepting returns from distributors because they realized too late that they needed to do an audit. So in July, they halt the buybacks from distributors. Rapidly falling hardware prices are destroying the software market. Distributors are barely buying anything new because they still have their glut of old product, and they're demanding price protection before they buy anything else, which basically means that distributors are saying, we'll take your product, but as part of our agreement, if we have to sell it for less, we get to keep our margin. If we have to sell it at a loss, 
then you have to compensate us for our losses. That's price protection. So distributors are taking less product and demanding more guarantees on the product they do take. Atari pushes another hardware rebate in August. Another $30 rebate. By this time, the Atari VCS is down to $50 at retail with rebates. $20 more expensive than a new AAA video game title. Assuming you're lucky enough to even sell it for that. Uh Uh-huh. Even the 5200, because the 5200 has been a disaster. The 5200 by this point is down to $115 at retail. It was released in late 1982, fall of 1982, at somewhere around like $250, $270, somewhere around there. Less than a year later, the Atari 5200 is going in some places after rebate for $115, over 50% of its value lost in less than a year. James Morgan's plan to get out of this was to refocus the company on video games and launch a new system as quickly as possible to try to get past all of this disaster. We've talked about this before in some of our other episodes. But he also was not the ruthless, cold-hearted son of a bitch that the company needed to survive the transition. Because as we talked about in our other Atari episodes, his strategy—I talked to him, so I got this straight from him— was to try to save as much of the company as he could, and so he tried to lay off just enough people to make ends meet. He didn't want to gut the company. He didn't want to take it down to zero. He was—he cared about the people. He says after the fact they needed a hatchet man, and that was not him. And so Morgan wasn't able to turn around the company fast enough. Warner Stock is in the tank. Rupert Murdoch—yes, that Rupert Murdoch— is trying to take advantage of the low Warner stock price to take over Warner Communications. Steve Ross is fighting for his life in the markets. They cannot wait for Atari to turn around as long as Atari continues to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. The Warner stock price is going to continue to be depressed, and outsiders are going to continue to try to take over the company. So, of course, that's why, in the end, they end up selling what they're able to. Of course, Jack Trammell ends up being the buyer. We're not really talking about that part of Atari history. We have other episodes that have covered that. But that's, you know, the end of the original Atari. Obviously, the brand, the systems, the games, a lot of things persist in various forms since then. But that's the end of the original Atari. Hopefully, you kind of get a sense after this episode of how much of that death of Atari was really self-inflicted through this mess of a distribution system and the uh, decision to keep trying to push product into the market. Morgan reversed the Kassar tactic, incidentally. You know, the famous ET cartridge burial, which isn't really just an ET cartridge burial. There's a lot more going on there than that. But the famous cartridge burial that involved ET, that was in late 1983. That was after Kassar left. Once Kassar left, they started destroying some stock. They started getting rid of some inventory. Kassar's decision to stay the course combined with the distribution mess and the spiraling prices and everything else, you know, kind of brought this all to an end. But Atari brought a lot of it onto itself. I'm not saying that Atari could have necessarily been saved. I mean, they were in a bad situation. It's in no way certain that a different course of action would have saved the company. Different course of action may have had the exact same outcome. We're not playing with counterfactuals here, but it is true that even if any other method of trying to save the company would have been just as bad or worse, that the method they chose most definitely did not work. I'm not sure what kind of analogy would work best here, but it's certainly a logistical nightmare. 
they're on a sinking ship, and they got more problems trying to right the ship than anyone seemed to be able to understand what's going on. Between people throwing more cartridges on, not getting rid of enough, saying, hey, let's poison the water barrels too while we're at it. It's nuts. I'm guessing, I mean, I can't be certain, but I'm I'm guessing the, the piece they didn't see was the price erosion of the entire category. I'd agree with you there. I think it's the price erosion is what they didn't really anticipate and is what really ultimately killed them. It's sort of like, okay, fine, maybe we can push things through. We'll take some losses here, but we'll be able to go back to Sunshines and Lollipops on the other side here where we're yeah. selling the hardware at $250 and we're selling the cartridges at $50 a pop. Yeah. We'll just make it up on the back end. We'll have a rough year, year and a half, and we'll be fine. Right. Because, you know, think of the DVD market. You can go into Walmart right now and go up near the checkout lines and find a bunch of really bad movies selling on a rack for like five bucks or three bucks or whatever. Just because you can buy a really bad movie at the front of a Walmart for five bucks doesn't mean suddenly people have stopped buying DVDs or Blu-rays at full price of good movies. I realize more and more people are going digital, but for the sake of this analogy, even if you take this back 10 years ago when the DVD market was booming, just because you could buy 10 or 15 years ago a cheap DVD at the cash register at Walmart for five bucks doesn't mean you weren't also buying high quality movies in big packages full of mini extras for 20, 30, 40 bucks. I think that's probably what Ray Kassar was expecting. I think he was thinking it's better to keep this product in the marketplace because even if we only get $1 a unit when we would normally get $10 a unit, that's still $1 more than we would get if we just destroyed the product and ate it, right? Right. Some money coming in is better than none. So I think he figured that, yeah, there'd be this period where there was this tidal wave of bad quality games that were liquidating or unpopular games that were liquidating, but we'll keep bringing out the new product as well. And the erosion in one space isn't going to erode the other space. I mean, stuff goes on clearance all the time. I mean, you know, just ordinary toys. You can go to the dollar store and get some cheap, stupid toy. That doesn't mean people stop going to the toy store and buying $10 action figures, even though they can buy a, like, $1 plastic army man at the dollar store or whatever. In a lot of fields, just because you can get something cheap doesn't mean that you don't also buy something expensive. I think that just the magnitude of the inventory, the relative unsophistication of the customer who didn't know much about video games yet— the newness of the product category, which led retailers and distributors to figure that it was just another fad, just like other consumer electronics before it, like CB radios and calculators. I just don't think video games as a category was established enough, understood enough, or resilient enough for the public to understand the difference between buying El Cheapo $5 game in the discount bin and buying high-quality or higher-quality $30 game at full retail price. That lack of consumer discernment or consumer caring about the difference, especially with the spiraling hardware prices that were screwing up the whole thing, caused that price erosion to be much more deadly than Ray Kassar anticipated. It may not be fair to say that Ray Kassar could have seen that because it's pretty extraordinary. But on the other hand, Don Kingsborough says that he saw it. And of course, Don's telling Don's version of the story. But 
He's got his bias, but still, there was clearly some pushback at Atari to that strategy because the moment Ray Kassar was out and Don was still at the company after Ray Kassar left, the moment Ray Kassar is out, you know, Ray Kassar is out in June and the uh, ET burials in July. I mean, the moment Kassar is out, they start destroying product instead of pushing into retail. So again, just the peripheral facts make the personal stories believable. There were people at the company that saw that they should stop this madness, <laughs> even if it was an extraordinary situation. And it took Ray getting fired for them to finally stop the madness. But by then, it was too late. Though, like I said, the situation was so bad that even if they had taken a different route, they wouldn't have necessarily come out. I mean, the time to prevent this was in 1982. In 1982, everybody from the top of the company on down dropped the ball on inventory, which is what led them to this mess in the first place. Even if by 1983 it was too late, there were still a lot of warning signs in 1982 that, as we talked about in our last episode, were completely ignored, and you ended up with this. I think your toy analogy and your DVD analogy really speaks to a vindication for Ray Cathar because that's the market he came from. Mm -hmm. He saw that kind of thing and sort of like, oh, he sees these kind of cycles where, okay, yeah, you might have a few bad products out there. You might have a glut of whatever out there in the toy industry. Fine. We can just push through this. I've seen this before. This is electronics. It's the same thing. He doesn't have any history or precedent with the contrary. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone was trying to do their best here. Obviously, no one was self-sabotaging Atari on purpose. <laughs> and it's always easier to look back than when you're in the thick of it. Though, like I said, there was disagreement at the time. It's not like Atari's entire management team was in lockstep behind Ray Kassar on how to deal with the situation. So he still deserves some score in there. I mean, he doesn't deserve to be completely vindicated, but you can at least see what he was probably thinking. I mean, I, I, there was probably a little hubris in there, a little bit of Atari's too big to fail in there. But you can also see that they couldn't necessarily predict that the bargain bins would just become the one-stop shop and sale of new games would just uh, dry up completely. Any way you look at it, I know, you know, sales and distribution might not be the most sexy side of the collapse of whole industries, but I really do think it was the linchpin. Uh, obviously, there were other factors. Certainly, home computers like the VIC-20 and the C64 being on the market probably eroded the value proposition even further. Certainly, the poor quality games and the glut of similar games was probably scaring consumers off. But of course, you know, the, the other example that I like to use that is also apropos to this is the Wii. The Wii is one of the best selling consoles of all time. The Wii was home to massive, massive hits like Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword and Super Mario Galaxy and Smash Brothers and, and all of this stuff. The Wii had an absolutely, horrendously, abysmally huge amount of execrable shovelware released for it. You could go to a GameStop back when they still mattered, and you would see huge bins. You would see bins of used Wii shovelware in GameStop. Literally bins, just like the discount bins you were seeing in retailers in 1983. But that didn't stop the Wii from being one of the most successful video game consoles of all time either, right? Yeah. We don't even have to go to DVDs to talk about this, even though that's a useful analogy. We can just look at later video game systems. But then again, you had a better discerning consumer. Yes. You had the more discerning consumer and you had a greater quality gap between the best and the worst games. The VCS was a limited system. 
There was only so much he could do with it, and it was getting harder and harder to emulate the latest, hottest releases in the arcade on the VCS. Even if Atari was making better games than everyone else, even if GCC did a pretty darn good Ms. Pac-Man, and Parker Brothers did a pretty darn good Frogger, and Coleco did the absolute best it could with Donkey Kong on the VCS, considering the hardware at the time, there wasn't that much difference between the really good games and the really bad games from the perspective of the consumer. They all looked very similar. They all played very similar. Obviously, the good games were better games. The controls were tighter. The levels were better designed. The graphical tricks were more clever. There's a huge gulf between Pitfall and Skeet Shoot by Games by Apollo. I mean, I'm not saying there's no difference, but I'm just saying it's not as wide a value proposition. Even the most sophisticated game you could get on the VCS, there's only so much you could get out of it. With the Wii, you have fantastic, engaging games like Twilight Princess on one hand. Right. Then you have Her Pals on the other, where you play with a cat and you get to clean the kitty litter. Wii controls to clean kitty litter. Yeah, which is terrible, but Twilight Princess or Super Mario Galaxy is so much more sophisticated, so much better, provides so many more hours of entertainment that a consumer can make a distinction between that. Definitely. But even though Pitfall and Raiders of the Lost Ark, even though there's a wide gulf on the one hand in terms of the playability and the quality of those two games with a, with a similar Indiana Jones-like concept, one a true Indiana Jones license, the other just very Indiana Jones-like, there's still not that much difference. The margin between the two is much smaller. That combined with the fact that the consumer just wasn't super sophisticated or had super great attachment to video games as a product category at this point because they weren't so ingrained in culture meant that consumers were not going to show the patience to buy the latest and greatest games as opposed to the bargain basement games, especially when the VCS was such an old system, was so limited in its capabilities. I mean, the ColecoVision may have actually come out of this whole thing unscathed. It was not affected in the same way as Atari and Mattel were. It's just that Coleco decided to go chase the home computer market with the Atom, and that sunk their chances. Coleco could have realistically been a successor that kept the market going. The Atari VCS was not going to keep the market going. The Atari 5200 could have conceivably kept the market going, but it had its own problems and was buried by ColecoVision. ColecoVision could have kept the market going, maybe. Maybe, because the glut was very big. They got sidetracked by the Atom, and they gave up on the video game market. So, I mean, there's, there's other factors in play for why the entire market collapsed. You know, when it comes to specifically Atari, it's just that the VCS... It's a logistical nightmare with Atari. Yeah. The VCS was just not a sustainable product in that time, in that place, and it fell apart. It is interesting to kind of examine other periods of time, like the Wii, where a similar glut of poor quality software didn't torpedo the whole market. Well, Alex, this ship is sinking so much that we are up on the crow's nest here, and I can see the dock over there. If we just step out our foot here a little bit, we can just step onto that in a second. As we go into the local pub, in order to drown our sorrows of the lost ship that was Atari, what shall we get into next time as we drown our sorrows? Well, I think we've hit the business side of the industry pretty heavily the past couple of episodes. My book, available from major uh, online retailers, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People 
and companies that shape the video game industry is about companies, sure, but it's also about people. And it's been a long time since we've done an episode focused on a people. I think next week we should look at one of the more important people in the development of video games, one Mr. Will Wright, who, of course, redefined not once but twice what a video game could be, first with the creation of SimCity and later with the creation of The Sims. Two products that everybody around him doubted, not an exaggeration, and ended up being a massive genre-defining, game-defining game industry defining hits a look at will wright the man the myth the legend the games all of that good stuff i guess we get to do a profile again so we will now cover will wright next time on they create world check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes you can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com alex's book they Create Worlds, the story of the people and companies that shaped the video game industry. Volume 1 can now be ordered at CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roller Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. And now back to SGDQ.